Hi everyone, welcome to 40 Days Through the New Testament. We're heading into week six. If you have a Bible or you wanna follow along with us on the Bible app, you can do that. We're gonna be in 2 Timothy chapter one. So while you're getting your Bibles open or your Bible apps open, I wanna take you back to the great city of Las Vegas, where you find the Spivey family just a couple of months ago. We were on our way elsewhere on vacation, spent the night in Las Vegas at the New York, New York Hotel and Casino. Now there, part of the reason we took it was because they had a roller coaster there. I have three daughters, 17, 15, and 10. So everybody was excited to go on that particular roller coaster on that night, except for one of those three daughters. I will let you guess which one, 17, 15, 10. Now this roller coaster was not like a little kid roller coaster. It has loops, it goes up high, it's very fast. It even has corkscrews on it. So. As we're going through this, you can hear the screams of people. You can see the thing moving through and moving above the casino. You can see it out on the strip and everything. So people in our family who had been out there to eat could see the sheer wonderful terror of the people that were on this particular roller coaster. So as we got closer, we were waiting our spot in line. And when we got right there, one of those three girls, yes, the 10-year-old, was panicked. She had that resistance, you know, when you're kind of guiding somebody and they decide they're hitting the brakes and they're not moving any further. So we had a decision to make at that point. We can't leave her by herself in a casino. So either I'll stay back and we'll stay back. The family doesn't go. Or you try to coach her along, find some way to get her on. So I took it upon myself to be her personal fear coach. And if I do say it, I was, I was magnificent. When we got onto the roller coaster, we get in there and the tears are, are welling up in the eyes and I'm giving all the best pep talks I can give. I'm giving her scripture. I'm giving her uh, at a girls. I'm giving her a, you know what? You won't notice a thing. I mean, so that's pretty much a lie, but that's okay. It's okay in those circumstances. I lied to her. I gave her the Bible. I did everything I could throw at her. And a lot of it's just meant to distract them, right? So by the time that you actually get you know, it's too late. They're locked in and the thing's moving by the time that they realize, oh no, I can't get out now. And that was kind of my strategy and it worked beautifully. So as we get going, the, the roller coaster takes off, the tears are starting to go and I said, it's gonna be okay. I will personally hold you inside this thing. So you can see the anxiety going and this thing takes off. You know, it does the initial tut, 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 tut thing all the way to the top. You're out, you're overlooking all of Las Vegas. There is sheer terror on my daughter's face. As it drops in, I had told her that I didn't think there was a loop on it, which I actually thought was the case at the time. But actually, one of the first things that happens is you hit a loop where the thing goes all the way completely upside down. So uh, you can see the look that she gives me right as we take off is one of you lied to me, which is not really what I, I was aiming for in this particular thing. I was just trying to help her overcome her fears. But she looks at me with these panicked, teary eyes. And I said, it's gonna be okay, here we go. And I tried to be excited so that she would be excited. And she screamed as we went up. We went all the way around and we came down. Now, of course, I'm worried at that point that she's gonna be absolutely you know, distraught and, and everything. But what I hear instead is screams of joy. And we made it all the way down. She was absolutely thrilled. And she was thrilled for two reasons. One is she realized, hey, that was actually pretty fun. And number two, I did it. I did it. I was afraid. I overcame it. And of course, I felt good because I was a magnificent fear coach. And I'm available for hire. Uh, I do need you to pay me, though. So 
I want you to think of it this way, Paul. He is Timothy's personal fear coach. He meets Timothy when he's young. Now, First and Second Timothy are these books that he writes when he's left Timothy in a particular spot or sent him to a particular church in Ephesus for the most part to go and to preach the gospel and to continue while Paul is either away or he's in prison. And 2 Timothy is different. 1 Timothy is very much when a couple of years before 2 Timothy, when Timothy is just kind of cutting his teeth in ministry and Paul is trying to help him understand how to lead. 2 Timothy is some of the same, but it's also a bit of a last will and testament of Paul. Paul's not trying to say, all right, Timothy, you know, you'll get the China and your sister will get the timeshare or those kind of things. It's not that kind of will and testament. It's a spiritual will and testament. It's something that says, hey, Timothy, uh, this, these words, I leave you. I'm charging you with this because I don't know if I'm going to see you again. But the problems, when you take 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy next to each other, you can see the fingerprints of the church setting in both. And the key issue is, Timothy is afraid. He's young, and he's getting beat up by people who are older than him, who are talking down to him because he's young. So even if he's speaking the truth, they're not listening to him. There are false teachers, uh, men and women, that have risen up in the church that are saying all sorts of crazy things. Timothy is struggling to get up the nerve to keep doing it, and he's just tired of getting beat up in ministry. He's just tired of it. And so Paul writes in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy multiple times, stop being afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Remember the faith that your, your mom and your grandmother had. Remember uh, the faith that I had and that I demonstrated for you. Remember, and he'll say today, remember the spirit that God has put in you. Remember the spirit that God has put in you. But Timothy's still scared again. So when 2 Timothy opens we see a big problem, that the one who was put there to courageously preach the gospel is afraid. Now, you may find yourself wondering from time to time, I've been afraid too. In fact, I'm afraid, I'm afraid a lot. Why is it that Satan always seems to pick fear? And why does the Bible talk so much about fear, about not being afraid? Why does it come up all the time? I mean, you can see it in the book of Joshua when they're getting ready to go uh, into Canaan and, and fight the great battles that they fight. Uh, as a people of God at that point, it's like, be strong and courageous, don't be afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous and don't be afraid. Why does that seem to be so important? And I think some of it boils down to what you see kind of underneath the surface here in Paul's letter to Timothy, that if fear overcomes you, whatever, whatever you fear controls you. And so if it's the opinion of others, it controls you. If I can make you afraid, I can control you. And so what he's trying to help Timothy understand is that when you preach the gospel, you are doing something by the power of the Spirit of God that is stronger than whatever it is that you're afraid of. So keep doing it. So with that in mind, let's read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Paul writes, This is why I remind you to fan into flame the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. Get this, underline it, memorize it. This is actually my favorite verse in all the Bible, is this one right here. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for Him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. 
For God saved us and he called us to live a holy life. And he did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So I've got three things that we're, I'm just going to walk us through. Basically, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and then the sermon is yours. So start where he starts here. He starts by telling him in verse 6, fan the flame, fan the flame. So in 1.6, he writes this again. He says, this is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. What he's saying is, Timothy, you can't just defend your way out of this, you, that there's something that God has put in you. Uh, when I laid my hands on you, that the Holy Spirit equipped you to do this. And so fan it into flame because you're going to need a sword, not just a shield when you're doing this. So fan it into flame, that means that you're going to be less afraid. It's pretty easy if you're going out, like imagine deciding you're going to play hockey and everybody out there is on ice skates, they have sticks, they have helmets, they have uh, pads and all this stuff, and you go out there in your tennis shoes with nothing else, you're going to be terrified. What he's saying is you fan into flame what I have, have poured into you. Keep working on it. Keep fanning it into flame. Keep allowing God to use you. Keep developing your gift. Keep pouring gasoline on that gift. Don't stop growing in it, okay? So he says then, secondly, he says, because the Spirit gives courage. The Spirit gives courage. Again, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Put very simply, the closer we get to God, the bolder we become. The closer we get to God, the bolder that we are going to become. Because courage isn't necessarily a matter of being bigger than everybody else. It's the one who is in us that is bigger than everything else. That's what makes us courageous. So he's saying the, the more that the, the Spirit of God is alive and thriving in you, the stronger you will become. And he's also simply stating it as a fact. God gave you a spirit, and it's not a, a spirit of fear or timidity or spiritual wimpiness, so to speak. Uh, that word in Greek is kind of sig signifies a lack of moral courage. It's when um, you don't have the guts to do the right thing, that kind of, of timidity, okay? And he's saying the spirit that God put in you is not that. That's not who you are in essence. It's about being more courageous than Maybe you could be in and of yourself. You certainly can't be as courageous as God would want you to be if his spirit is not alive and working in you. But because you belong to Christ, God's spirit is in you, which means you are courageous. You are courageous. So start acting that way. Allow the spirit of God to move you through. Now, to illustrate this, I'm going to take you to the wild, wacky world of lobster fighting. Now, you may not have ever seen a lobster fight, I admit to you, I have not myself. But lobsters are actually quite interesting. There are only so many good lobster homes out there, I guess, under the sea. They have uh, rocks and little hiding spots where they like to go, and so there are only so many lobster houses. So uh, a lobster will go looking for a place to, to make its home, and a lot of times there'll be another lobster underneath there. So that's where the trouble 
can begin. Now there are times where one lobster will look at the other lobster and see the size of their pinchers or whatever and say, okay, I'm not picking a fight with that dude or doodad, I'm out of here, and, and they'll go just keep moving on. But sometimes they say, no, nah, no, nah, I want that spot. And so they decide that they're going to take over. So here's what happens. So first thing they do is when they encounter, they kind of dance like boxers. They literally move forward and backward, side to side, like boxers do, okay? Then if that doesn't scare one or the other one of them off, they kind of move forward to the next phase, which is one or both of them start to secrete a very unique liquid from their eyes. And when they do, that liquid communicates to the other lobster a whole sequence of stuff about them. Size, sex, health, mood, all sorts of things. So this fluid goes out and it communicates, hey, this is who you're messing with, this is who you're dealing with here. So that's kind of like the, um, you know, if you've ever seen an old schoolyard fire, it's like, all right, man, I'm going to beat you up because I, I know karate or I know this or whatever. Everybody's trying to impress each other and they're trying to scare each other away. If that doesn't work, then sometimes it goes to phase three, which is kind of a wrestling match. Before it gets really ugly, they just try to kind of wrestle. They don't fight. They just try to pin the other one down, so to speak. And in their case, it's flipped the other one over onto their back. Okay, so if they do that, usually that kind of stops it. It's like, okay, you got me in, in one lobster or the other, will go away. But occasionally, they escalate all the way to phase four. And that's when the pinchers come out. A little eye sticking out or whatever, and they'll grab it and try and rip it off. Or uh, they'll grab a leg, or they'll grab some soft part that's not protected by a shell or something. And this kind of fighting is often fatal for a particular lobster. Now, here's what's interesting. Whoever loses in that, should they survive, is essentially put into the lobster loserville section of lobster land, wherever that may be. Here's what I mean by that. That particular losing lobster from that point on is viewed as a loser and they shrink back and they change. They literally begin to physically change because of the defeat that they suffer. They're treated differently by the lobster community, but physically they begin to change to the point that two things happen. Eventually, the actual brain that the lobster has will dissolve and they will grow a brand new brain. Except this brain is kind of designed for loser lobsters. I'm not making this up. A lobster's brain will dissolve and they will grow a new one that basically says to them, you are a loser. You are here in the pecking order. So if before they might have been a mid-level lobster, now it says to them, you are not that, you're, you're not that great. You're kind of like, you know, you're, you're the last person picked. You're the, you're, you're down here in the lobster pecking order. Their brain that they had before literally dies and they grow an entirely new mind, okay? And then here's what that does. It produces in them a different posture. So winning lobsters, they will, they walk with great posture. They're very upright. Uh, they look like, you know, Clint Eastwood in an old spaghetti western. Up, they look dangerous, they look like don't mess with me. The losing lobster types, guess what? The shoulders are forward and they kind of slink around very sadly all around the ocean. So it's not very hard to spot who's who. So imagine being one of those kind of losing lobsters and they tend to kind of go and hide away from the community because they're very afraid of everybody and everything. So here's 
here's where this kind of goes. See, there are people who, when they're following Jesus, they're leading a church, they're doing something else. Uh, they, they, they maybe experience a setback, they experience a defeat. And rather than them continuing to walk victoriously, or let's say that they let God down or something, repenting of that, or asking for God to forgive them and, and, and give them another chance at it, they actually begin to develop a different kind of mindset that basically says everything is dangerous. I'm no good. I'm not very smart. I don't have enough integrity. I'm not this. I'm not that. And they literally change the way that they see everything, the world. It changes. I'm going to suggest to you that Christianity has a posture problem. Now, what I mean by that is not that we're not proud enough. I think sometimes we struggle with that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of posture that demonstrates I am confident in what I am, a, I am capable of doing in the gospel. That's what Paul is trying to teach Timothy. Timothy's always getting beat up by people, essentially, in the church, and he's letting it impact whether or not he's going to continue to preach the gospel. You're reading through the, uh, the lines there, it looks a little bit like maybe he's ashamed of Paul. You know, that they're making fun of him because he runs with Paul and Paul's in prison and Paul may be beheaded or whatever. He's like, don't be ashamed of me and don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy. He'll tell him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, which some people think the guy was so worried and beaten up and depressed that his stomach was giving him problems. Don't let him look down on you because you're young. He's saying, Timothy, you got a posture problem. It's not pride. It's not pride. It's confidence. It's what you see in David when he's fighting Goliath. Right? Shepherd boy, couple of stones. He's ready to take Goliath out with a slingshot. Now Saul, the guy with all the armor on, is over there terrified. And so what appears, Saul looks like he would be a winning lobster, but in the kingdom of God, he's the losing lobster. David, on the other hand, look at his posture. Who is this guy? Who's this guy across the ravine? Who's this uncircumcised Philistine who's hurling insults at God? You know, I'm going I'm to make short work of this. God's protected me from the bear and the lion, and he'll protect me from him as well. That's, that's what Paul's trying to get Timothy to get. It's not you're the biggest, baddest man in the town in and of your own self. It's that for you, Timothy, to live as Christ, to die as gain. How in the world can you get somebody to be afraid who, who thinks that whether they're alive or dead, it's all the same essentially because they want to be with Christ? That whether I'm in the prison cell or whether I'm walking around free, it's the same great experience of being able to follow Jesus. That no matter what you do to me, I'm going to continue to preach. You may remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the Old Testament. Their line, when they're thrown into the fiery furnace by uh, the authorities there for not being willing to worship them instead of God, they say, you know what, God is going to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship you. See, posture, boldness. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. See, again, it's not that Christians don't have enough pride. I'm saying that sometimes as I look around at the world today, maybe you feel the same way, I see Christians acting and thinking in ways increasingly that make us more likely to become chronically timid on an ongoing basis. 
that create a disconnect between our words that we're more than conquerors through him who loved us and our actions that say we're terrified of everything that's going on, please don't hurt us. There is a posture that goes with being a Christian that is not pride. It is, I recognize that I am walking in victory because of the spirit that God has put in me. And no matter what you do, I will not stop preaching the gospel. I will not be ashamed of the gospel. I will not be ashamed of who God has created me to be and what he has called me to do. Nope, not going to do that. Because the spirit that God put in me is not one of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. So it looks strange indeed, I think, sometimes when people hear us talk about this great God that we have and then see Christians who are so terrified of everyday things or uh, so afraid of, of taking risks or adventure or things that God has called them to do. So let's listen one more time to 2 Timothy 1.7. For God did not give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. Number three, God gives us courage for his purposes, okay? He gives us courage for his purposes. This is not aimless. It's aimed at furthering the gospel. So uh, let's go back to verse 8. So Paul writes, so never be ashamed, never be ashamed to tell other people about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength that God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. Okay? Our courage has an aim. It's not just being bold just for boldness sake. It's, it's boldness aimed at the mission of God, the spirit that God gave us, furthering the mission the spirit gives us. So he says, so don't be afraid to preach the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be bold, Timothy. Be bold. See, being courageous does not mean that you're mean or that you lack, uh, that you lack compassion. Uh, my friend Ron Highfield wrote this. He said, The Christian is as courageous as a lion, but as gentle as a lamb. They have wills as hard as steel, but hearts as soft as wax. I love the way that Hebrews 10:39 echoes what we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says this: We don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We're easily fearful people. I didn't try salsa until I was 30 years old. I'm talking about living a life of regret, okay? I, I, 30 years, I didn't even try it because I thought I wouldn't like it because I didn't really like tomatoes. I like tomato sauce, but I didn't like chunks, you know? Uh, I didn't, I just didn't like it. I didn't like people pressuring me to do it or whatever. And I realized, of course, 30, I try it. And, and it was like I was in a whole new world. Uh, it was like the scales had fallen from my eyes. And I realized, I can't believe I missed this all along. Uh, I, I, I think back on so many different times when I felt like God tried to nudge me. He tried to get me to do something. And maybe I was resistant to it or I was, I was too afraid or too cowardly to do it or I was too hesitant to do it. But I want you to join me in asking this 
particular thing of God, which is, God, help me to imagine what it's like to live a life where I'm never afraid. Give me a heart that is not afraid. Give me a heart that's not afraid. Give me a heart that's not afraid. And it's not just being not afraid. It's having the power, the love, and the self-discipline that God replaces the fear with that makes us who we are, that makes us have a will of steel and a heart as soft as wax. You know, some of us are so afraid of the future we can't enjoy life or honor God in the present. Some parents are so afraid of losing their child's affection that they'll do anything to keep it, even if it means raising them to be kind of selfish or even worse. And they don't pay enough attention to how God sees their child, how God wants them to, to parent their children. Some kids are so afraid of losing their parents or their peers' approval that they'll do absolutely anything to keep it. I mean, some, some pastors are too afraid to say what really needs to be said because they don't want to lose the affection of the church or they want to take criticism. They never tried big kingdom initiatives because in the back of their mind, they're paralyzed by this, but what, what if we fail in the back of their mind? The Bible tells us over and over and over again to be strong and courageous. That's why it gives us these great stories like Esther, like David and Goliath, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel and the lion's den. Those are the apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ. And all the way up here to the end of Paul's life, which is just probably right at the end of Paul's life before he's, his life is taken from it by, uh, by the governing officials of the time. So... Why is it so hard to be fearless sometimes? Well, why is it that Satan always seems to know exactly where to push? I think sometimes it's easy to look at the scriptures and go, yeah, but that was back then, but, but that's not really what the scriptures are for. They're designed to help us gain confidence and courage by looking at their example. So maybe this morning or this evening, whenever you're watching this online, you're going to be able to look at this and go, okay, I've been in Timothy's spot before. Or I've been in Paul's spot where I'm trying to encourage somebody to be confident and take some courage from this. But, but whichever side you're on, whether it's Paul, Timothy, somewhere in between on the other side of them, remember the point that the spirit that God has put in you, the one he's put in me, is not one of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. One that gives us wills as hard as steel and hearts as soft as wax. One that makes Christians part lion and part lamb, just like our Savior. In antiquity, the God who ruled the battlefield was Phobos, the God of fear. And in much of Christianity, Phobos, not the God of Scripture, actually rules the battlefield of people's lives. In fact, fear is such a slave master, she keeps us from the battle at all sometimes. I mean, a lot of Christians never engage because they're just too afraid of the cost. They're afraid of what would happen if they actually threw themselves all the way into it. Well, what, what if it doesn't work? In quotes. You know, uh, what if I find myself disappointed? What if it doesn't make any impact? What if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. I've always loved to coach girls softball. I, I coach my, all three of my daughters at one point or another, and my 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 privilege was to coach these little, little dudes that, dudettes, that were learning to catch for the very first time. 
And so they were covered head to toe. I mean, helmet, uh, chest protector, shin guards, glove, all this stuff. And yet, when you're teaching somebody that game at that age, they don't understand they even that they're covered head to toe in armor. And nothing is going to hurt them at that point. The ball is A, isn't being thrown very hard. So even if it did hit them, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But they're covered in protective gear from head to toe. And so I can sit there until I'm blue in the face. I can say, it's not going to hurt. Don't worry. It won't hurt. It won't hurt. It won't hurt. They don't buy it because they're not mature enough yet to have enough experience under the belt to know that, first of all, ball can hit them and they can still live. Uh, that, that, that gear will protect them if something hits them. See, when Paul gives us the illustration of the armor of God, there's something like that that he's trying to teach us, is that whatever it is that you're facing, it doesn't mean that you won't experience any pain, but I am not sending you out there just completely unprotected. Put on the full armor of God, Paul will say, because you're in an actual battle. So if you're out there and you've never once felt like you were in a battle, I guess it's worth asking if maybe you're playing playing the game the right way. Does that make sense? I mean, if, if you've never experienced persecution, if you've never taken a risk, if you've never sacrificed anything, you know, um, have you given the chance for the Holy Spirit to do what he can do through you? That's the question I want to present to you this morning because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And so today, as we begin to turn toward the table of the Lord, when we take communion, we take the bread and the cup, and we do it in the name of Jesus Christ, the fearless one. Jesus, whose spirit lives in us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, now lives in us. And so as we take the Lord's Supper this morning and tonight, I want you to dwell on that. Don't dwell on that, because what we're invo involved in right now is a lot more than a lobster fight. This, what we're engaged in, is pictured as a race, it's pictured as a war, it's pictured as a battle, it's pictured as a, uh, you know, a great adventure, a pilgrimage, and all those kinds of things. It's, it's, it's something of major, major importance. It'll change your life. It'll change your eternity. It will change the lives and eternities of everybody around you. And if you have come to Christ, then God has enlisted you in what he's doing in this world, and he's given you everything that you need to be faithful. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we want to live lives that are not afraid. We want hearts that are full of the spirit of power and love and self-discipline, not full of timidity, not full of fear. So today, Father, in the name of Jesus, who we remember now with bread and cup, we ask you for boldness. We ask that you transform our hearts from fearful to brave, from courage-free to courageous. Father, we know that what you have called us to matters a lot and that we can't imagine in our wildest dreams what you have in store for us if we will just give ourselves over to you fully. And so help us trust you, Lord, so that we can walk boldly every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.